Welcome to the Frontline Gastroenterology podcast discussing the recently published paper in January 22 titled Rumination Syndrome, Pathophysiology, Diagnosis and Practical Assessment. My name is Dr. Aditi Kumar. I'm the trainee associate editor of Frontline Gastroenterology and the specialist gastroenterology trainee in the West Midlands, UK. I would like to extend a very warm welcome to Dr. Ben Disney and Dr. Dipesh Vasant, who will be participating in our podcast today. Dr. Ben Disney is a consultant gastroenterologist at the University Hospitals Coventry and Warwickshire NHS Trust UK. He has a specialist interest on disorders of the gut-brain interaction. Dr. Dipesh Vasant is a consultant gastroenterologist and honorary senior lecturer at the University of Manchester UK with a specialist interest in neurogastroenterology and motility disorders. Both Dr. Disney and Dr. Vasant are the senior authors on this comprehensive and highly educational paper. Firstly, I'd like to thank you both for being here with me today to discuss the topic of rumination syndrome, which I will confess I didn't know too much about until reading this paper. Dr. Disney, would you be able to give us a brief overview of rumination syndrome and why it's important for all the clinicians to be aware of this diagnosis? Thank you, Aditi, and thanks for inviting both myself and Dipesh to talk about uh, rumination. So rumination, uh, I've been sort of talking about for probably close to a decade now, having uh, initially worked with Nigel Trudgill um, in writing a previous review for Frontline. And up until that point, I hadn't really heard of it. And I must admit, over the, over the last sort of decade, it's been one of those conditions where I think people either have got a brief awareness of it or, or think you're talking about a psychological disorder. But actually, it's, it's a really important and really interesting disorder when you, when you go, go into it. So we would class it as a disorder of the gut-brain interaction. And really, it's it's very under-recognised. And it is important to know about because we find that these patients have repeated encounters with healthcare professionals going perhaps from you know uh, one hospital to the next to the next uh, having repeated tests all without really getting uh, very far so they have often had several um, OGDs perhaps MRI small bowel CT scans so it, it is important to know about uh, recently um the Rome Foundation did a, a study looking at the global prevalence of, of all the disorders of gut-brain interaction. And for rumination syndrome, they found that it was around nearly 3% uh, prevalence globally. And really, it's a spectrum of the disorder going from effortless regurgitation all the way through to sort of severe refractory symptoms um, with uh, significant weight loss requiring um, alternate feeding. And it's one of these syndromes where really patients will probably present and and, and tell people that they, they're suffering with recurrent vomiting. And that's often where the, the issue uh, comes at the beginning. It, if someone tells you that they're vomiting, then often people will take that as, as red um, and go down the route of well, what, what's causing vomiting. But actually, with rumination syndrome, it's really about breaking down that symptom more and finding out exactly what a patient means by it and I can think back to around 2015 um, when I was finishing my registrar training and a patient who who came in and with recurrent vomiting uh, but actually when when you spoke to her um, if you said is this uh, you know preceded by nausea and, and a a forceful vomit she was just like no it's it's just an effortless regurgitation food just comes back into my mouth after I've eaten uh, and I'll either uh, swallow it or, or spit it out. And that's really what, what these patients, the main symptom is. And, and 
there is the criteria, the Rome 4 criteria for, for rumination. That's quite helpful. And it's quite helpful to sit down with patients and, and go through that, really. They talk about regurgitation, which is which is effortless. And it is followed by either chewing or, or re-swallowing food and spitting it out. Like I said, there's no preceding retching. And uh, the other sort of criteria that, that fall within this is that there's no nausea uh, prior to this. And uh, that often the regurgitant contains recognisable food that's just been swallowed. And generally, um, sufferers of this will stop regurgitating or ruminating uh, when that regurgitant becomes acidic. And those symptoms should have been present for around three to six months prior to diagnosis. Great. Thank you, Dr. Disney. Now, you also mentioned in your paper that this condition can be seen in patients with eating disorders and fibromyalgia. Do you think this is a conscious effort in regurgitation with patients with eating disorders then? You're quite right. We we did mention certainly with eating disorders, the, the it's estimated to be that of patients demonstrating ruminating behaviour, around 20% of patients will have a, a coexisting eating disorder. So that's certainly something to uh, to consider and, and uh, perhaps refer on to a specialist. And, and fibromyalgia, close to around 8%. In regards to the pathophysiology of it, actually, there's a really nice diagram in, in the paper. And this is, it's a behavioural disorder. It's unconscious and it's involuntary and it becomes habitual. Patients may have had a, a, a sort of initial insult, perhaps um, a gastroenteritis, and then that's where they've they've sort of learnt the behaviour from. So generally with these patients, they will swallow as normal, so fluid and food will, will uh, pass down the esophagus as normal. Uh, and as with any normal swallow, as, as the bolus reaches the towards the bottom end of the esophagus, the lower esophageal sphincter relaxes. Now, what patients with rumination syndrome do is they involuntarily start to contract their abdominal muscles. So that's the external obliques, uh, the upper and lower rectus and the internal obliques. And what happens as a result of that is the intra-abdominal pressure increases. Due to that, the pressure in the abdomen will uh, increase and it will approach the lower esophageal sphincter pressure. And as soon as that intra-abdominal pressure exceeds the lower esophageal sphincter pressure, you get the regurgitation of the gastric contents leading up uh, into, into the esophagus and back into the mouth. So it's really, a, um, I, I would view it as, as a behavioural disorder. It's, you know, it's unconscious and it's involuntary rather than patients, you know, sort of bringing it onto themselves or, or, or it being a conscious effort. Great. That's great to know. Thank you. Moving on to Dr. Vasant, can you explain how this might be associated with fibromyalgia then? Thank you, Dee. Um, so as Ben mentioned, rumination sits under the umbrella of disorders of gut-brain interaction. And these disorders share a lot of common pathophysiology with other functional disorders, such as fibromyalgia, which um, the common pathways are thought to be due to abnormal pain processing pathways and signaling pathways. And as Ben mentioned, these are often learned behaviours. So there's often a priming event, such as an episode of pain or gastroenteritis, 
And it's likely that patients who have fibromyalgia may have pain processing signals or visceral hypersensitivity to some extent, which may trigger this sort of protective response of contracting the abdominal muscles to help relieve pain initially. And this then may become an acquired learned behavioral response, um, which can result in a subconscious rumination. And it's really interesting that some of the data we've quoted recently looking at um, the role of neuromodulators in helping patients with rumination with some positive results. And this suggests that treating the visceral hypersensitivity may also help the um, rumination uh, condition. So therefore, it suggests that there might be a sensory component which would fit in with fibromyalgia, which is a painful functional disorder affecting the musculoskeletal system. Well, that's very interesting. Thank you. So moving on, Dr. Vassan, do you think if educated properly, this condition can be diagnosed and managed by primary care physicians without needing to refer to secondary care? That's a really interesting question. I think, you know, this condition by raising awareness and the diagnosis can clearly be made at an earlier stage the diagnostic criteria are quite distinctive. And if one takes the history from a patient um, in a certain way, earlier recognition could prevent complications such as dehydration or malnutrition. And certainly with a delayed diagnosis, which we often see, patients often have lost considerable amounts of weight, um, which leads to concern and often the need for secondary care investigations such as endoscopy to rule out any organic or other structural causes. So I think it is important to be aware of the diagnosis and also treatment could effectively be delivered by any healthcare professional able to instruct the patient on diaphragmatic breathing. And this is a technique which possibly takes about five to 10 minutes to teach. And as part of this, when we were developing the paper, we have developed a YouTube video, which I would encourage people and healthcare professionals to access, which shows how to briefly demonstrate diaphragmatic breathing. And so this could prevent the need for a secondary care uh, referral potentially if diagnosed early with the clinical criteria being met and preventing um, other complications which would need secondary care management. Brilliant, thank you. Speaking of management, Dr. Disney, how effective is behavioural therapy versus uh, pharmacological therapy? Dipesh has, has touched on some of the, the mainstays of the management and before I sort of go into how effective they are, I'll just sort of say the, the reassurance and explanation of, of rumination to those with uh, milder symptoms might be all that's needed. It's just, you know, having a, a good doctor-patient relationship and simply taking a bit of time, as we often need to do with uh, patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction, just to, to explain, get their understanding of it and, and just really reassure them. And I've certainly had patients where that's been all that they've needed uh, and they've, they've gone away quite happy and, and that's been it from them. But like you mentioned, there are different therapies. And, and as, as Dipesh said, um, the mainstay of treatment is diaphragmatic breathing. And that's certainly the, the first sort of treatment that we, we go to. And as Dipesh mentioned, there's a great YouTube uh, clip. And, and this can be delivered, as he's already said, by, by any healthcare professional. And the other thing, if, if simply advising patients diaphragmatic breathing, um, if they don't uh, 
derive significant benefit from that. It can be useful to get them uh, back in the physiology lab and, and actually deliver some biofeedback. So actually have the, the patients um, having some real-time sort of uh, high-resolution manometry just to, so that they can uh, be shown the, the ruminating behaviour, be then shown and, and talk through the diaphragmatic breathing and just see how, that, how effective that is at um, reducing their ruminating behaviour. And I think the patient being able to see that can be a really powerful tool. And some studies report up to 75% of patients get significant improvement in symptoms with that. That, that's really what we've got most um, evidence for. Then with, with refractory patients, there are, there are medical treatments like Depeche has already mentioned and talking about visceral hypersensitivity. There, there are some studies with uh, the use of, uh, of amitriptyline with there being that pain component perhaps. And the, there's been promising results in up to 70% of improvement with those patients. And the alternative is, is using baclofen, um, which has probably been the most studied medical therapy and baclofen uh, helps by increasing the tone of the lower esophageal sphincter however with both baclofen and amitriptyline their use is often limited by side effects um, we all know with amitriptyline uh, with with our, our patients with ibs that uh, they'll often complain that it causes daytime uh, somnolence and they, they just can't tolerate it and baclofen can often uh, cause some uh, Again, sort of symptoms like that that they can't they can't tolerate it. So really, I think behavioural treatments are probably the the best initial treatment for this, and medical therapy is reserved really for those patients that are still having re- symptoms despite um, utilising all the behavioural treatments. But really, overall, um, those behavioural treatments are are very effective as long as the patient's got some buy-in into it. And like I mentioned, I think that, um, that use of, of biofeedback can be really powerful to, for the patient to, to see and observe that behaviour and see the improvement with the, the diaphragmatic breathing. And finally, Dr. Vasan, what would you consider to be the top three key points our listeners should take away regarding this condition? My first point would be that rumination syndrome is an underrecognized yet easily treatable an easy to miss condition. And so in any patient with recurrent regurgitation, without any retching or nausea, please always consider rumination syndrome as part of the differential diagnosis. The second point is that behavioral therapy, such as diaphragmatic breathing, which can be taught by any healthcare professional, and or biofeedback therapy with manometry after a test meal can be a very effective treatment in most cases. And so with effective therapy and a sympathetic explanation, most patients do very well with treatment. And so early recognition can prevent suffering and complications over investigation, potentially recurrent admissions, um, artificial feeding and weight loss, and dehydration. So I think in summary, um, it's an important diagnosis not to miss and something that we can really make a difference if we positively diagnose it at an early stage. Thank you both Dr. Disney and Dr. Fassant for taking the time out of your busy schedules to join our podcast today. I think that was really educational. Once again, congratulations on a fantastic paper published in Frontline Gastroenterology. Mm-hmm.